Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Sorry, sorry, I almost forgot something there. Okay, apologies. There we go. Got everything set up properly now here. Welcome, everybody. Good <laughs> evening, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 16 of our discussion of Inferno. We are in the midst of the Eighth Circle, the very eventful Malabonja, where we get the ten different flavors of fraud, uh, and we are moving on to a new one tonight. Um, okay, and I think... Oh, all right. Okay, sorry, sorry. Somebody was just complaining about not having sound, but I think that was idiosyncratic. I think sound is okay, right? Sound is okay? People are getting sound? It's always possible that I've misconnected something, but I looks like everybody's getting sound. Um, okay, cool. So, uh, before we start tonight, two quick announcements, um, uh, or just reminders, both of them, really. Uh, the first is to remember that Mythmoot is coming. So, Mythmoot 8 is going to be happening between June 24th and 27th. I want to encourage everybody to sign up now. As I've mentioned before, we're considering, we're, we're still debating uh, whether or not we might be able to do a hybrid moot this year, some in person and some remote. Um, I mean, it will certainly be available remotely, no question. Um, but the, the real question is whether or not we're going to be able to do anything on site as well. Um, we're going to, we're planning to be making that decision by the end of March or, you know, at the end of March. So we'll see about that. Um, but what I wanted to encourage people to do, our registration is open right now. Um, Mootcast and Moot Hub are, uh, are remote options. The first for the sort of lower impact, um, uh, kind of asynchronous attendance, you can attend live uh, individual sessions, but again, it's for primarily for people who aren't really going to be able to be there with us all day, you know, during the conference. And then Moot Hub, which is for people who are uh, and would really like the conference experience of being able to be there and, you know, mingling with friends and everything during the whole conference time. Uh, that is Moot Hub. So both Mootcast and Moot Hub are open for registration. Um, and I want to encourage you to, if you're thinking about doing uh, MythMoot, uh, please sign up sooner rather than later, because uh, like I know some people might be kind of waiting to be like, well, I'll wait to see what they decide. If you sign up now, you can be part of that decision process, uh, because, of course, uh, the people who have already registered are one of the primary groups of people. One of the things that's really going to that's going to uh, have a, a significant impact uh, on the decision that we make is going to be uh, of the people who are planning to attend, you know, how many of them would want to come in person, right? I mean, that, that of course, uh, is a thing which could uh, make the decision simpler. So uh, anyway, we definitely would like to, uh, to do that. And there will be, um, you know, if we don't do anything in person, then we'll proceed, you know, with what we've got and it'll be good. Um, if we do, then we will have, you know, some upgrade options uh, for folks who are, uh, uh, who are attending, um, you know, who've already enrolled. So uh, there won't be any issues uh there i think either so anyway just wanted to encourage folks on that go to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot uh to see all of the details that we have all of our speakers and uh the call for papers very importantly right there's so much stuff um you know i've been saying throughout our discussion of inferno my goal here is not to answer the questions but to ask them uh really if i can provoke enough interesting questions then i will have done my job here in our discussion of inferno uh so i know there are lots and lots of interesting things to discuss 
podcast, not only with this, but I mean, goodness, remembering back to our wonderful Morgoth's Ring discussions and, and, and everything else before that. So lots of stuff. Um, and so many of you have so many interesting questions and really interesting uh, thoughts and reflections. So would love to uh, see some proposals. I know that several of, uh, of you have uh, uh, given talks at MythMoot before or made presentations or led discussions. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's been really cool. So hoping you will consider to do that again, go to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot. Uh, and you can find all the information you need for that. The second reminder that I have to give, uh, is about Signum Academy clubs. Our Signum Academy clubs are starting up. I'm very excited about this. Our clubs program is brand new. Uh, this is the program. It's an extracurricular program for kids, grades three, through 12. Um, so kids and teens, uh, and I am really looking forward to uh, seeing that we are, we're, as I say, we're officially starting those up. Uh, we're going to be launching our first sections of those. Um, we've been uh, organizing some things and working some things out with the state and everything, and that's all set now. And uh, we are moving forward and very excited about it. We're going to have folks, we're going to have some uh, some students learning uh, uh, Old English. Uh, we're going to have some students uh, uh, re- doing a book club. We have creative writing club. We have a conversation club. Um, so it's um, um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be really fun. So I just wanted to encourage folks to look into that. Uh, we still have plenty of room in our sections. And of course it's, we know one of the, uh, one of the, the, the really challenging things at the beginning of a program like this is sort of sorting everybody, uh, into sections at the beginning. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we, you know, we have a whole bunch of different options, right? We have four different clubs and multiple languages, even in, in the language clubs. And we have, uh, um, uh, you know, three different age ranges and, and everything. So we're, tra- and, uh, you know, not to mention time availabilities and time zones. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, data points here and there. And so getting people kind of clustered together to form sections uh, is often really challenging at the very beginning. So just encourage folks, if you're thinking about it, reach out and ask questions about it. See what, uh, you know, what we think, what you guys might be interested to do. Uh, this is academy at signumu.org is the email that you should reach out or, um, you know, go to our Signum Academy webpage. Again, you can find that through our Signum University homepage. Go to signumuniversity.org. Uh, you scroll down, you'll see the links to Signum Academy right there on the homepage, or you can also see it right across the very top of the page there as well. Um, so that is, uh, that is the other thing I wanted to remind you of, Signum Academy Clubs, which I am so excited about. I've been really delighted to see registrations coming in for that. Uh, some familiar uh, names and some new names that I haven't seen before, and that's been, uh, uh, that's been a lot of fun. So anyway, um, okay. Let's. Uh, yeah, we should use the star, the the sorting hat, Starsha. Yeah, that would be that would be helpful. Well, well basically, Starsha. I, I, you know, normally at Signum, basically Sparrow Alden is this is this is the is the sorting hat. You know, that's kind of that's kind of one of her roles. Uh, so, and she's been uh, she's been advising on the sorting uh, in clubs. So you know, uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, let us get back into the text here. So we looked at. Uh, we finished up with uh, the, primarily the popes uh, in the pouch of simony, and then we got on to the diviners uh, and fortune tellers. Uh, in you know, at the end of last time, and tonight we go into a new section. And 
I feel like I've been saying this a lot, but I'm going to say it again anyway. I don't understand this section. Um, but I don't understand it in a different way. My, my confusion is of a different flavor than other kinds of confusion that I've had about other passages. So let me explain that exhilarating situation. Um, it's not sometimes <laughs> oh the many ways in which I don't fully understand Dante one of the ways in which I don't understand Dante is when he is like very cryptic and I don't get it and I feel like I should understand what he's referring to and I don't understand what he's referring to sometimes it's when I can tell that there is this really rich tapestry of allegory and I'm just not really putting together all the pieces there um, uh, here's, a, here's a different way um, I don't understand. It's not that I don't follow what's happening in these next two stanzas. Uh, stanzas 20 and 21, I think. Or is it 21 and 22? I'm losing track now all of a sudden. Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, it's not that I'm not following what's happening. I'm following, I think. I just don't understand why it's happening. Um, and in particular, what I am most curious about, uncertain about, is the representation of the demons in this next pouch. Now, this is the most, uh, well, I guess like the most screen time, right, that the demons are going to get. Um, we've seen them before. We were talking about uh, the demons especially. So, so far, we've had basically kind of two different categories of demons, right? One was the pagan mythology demons, right? Like Cerberus, uh, most prominently, or uh, 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 Plutus, right? The second reason, uh, the, second, uh, the second kind of demon that we have been seeing, right, that, that we've found is we were just noticing the ones who were whipping the folks in the pouch of the of the panderers, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the pimps and seducers uh, in the very first pouch uh, here in the Eighth Circle. And we were noticing that in that place, it seemed, it, it certainly seemed fitting. Um, we were pointing out, uh, several of you were observing, I think, David, I think you were the one who made the observation originally, um, that they're being dehumanized. They're being, they're being herded like herd animals, right? They're being treated like beasts, um, uh, in the way that they're being, uh, you know, sort of, uh, whipped and rushed along there, um, like beasts or like slaves. Uh, and of course this is a, uh, a, a sort of, well, not exactly a reversal, but them being treated in, in the way that they were treating others, right? That, you know, through their dehumanization and objectification of women, uh, they were, uh, well, again, not even objectification, but, um, uh, again, they were, and it was all men who were treating women, um, again, as commodities or as, um, as, you know, objects, as conveniences. Um, and so it seemed sort of fitting in that way. Here, what on earth is going on? So what is going on with these demons? Why are they here? What's happening with them? Who are they? And what is the deal with all this? So those are basically my questions as we go into tonight's session. So let us plow ahead. All right, it is 21 and 22. Okay, all right. Uh, well, uh, I wasn't remembering. Okay. Um, we came along from one bridge to another, talking of things my comedy is not concerned to sing. 
Can I just say how tantalizing that is? Talking of things my comedy is not concerned to sing. Uh, so something that does it does it fall below the uh, the 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 range where it is worthy of attention within the poem, or is it above it? Right? Is it like, um, you know, we were speaking of the? I, I have no idea what they were talking about. But it's interesting that that we get this um, um, we get this reference to private conversations that we are told we're not being told about, right? He goes out of his way uh, to, he, you know, dedicates two and a half lines of his comedy to telling us that his comedy is not going to cover uh, this conversation (laughs) that they're having here. Um, Okay. We held fast to the summit, then stayed our steps to spy the other cleft of Malabolgia and other vain laments. I saw that it was wonderfully dark, As in the arsenal of the Venetians, all winter long, a stew of sticky pitch boils up to patch their sick and tattered ships that cannot sail. Instead of voyaging, some build new keels, some tar, some tow and tar the ribs of hulls worn out by too much journeying. Some hammer at the the prow, some at the stern, and some make oars, and some braid ropes and cords. One mends the jib, another the mainsail. So, not by fire, but by the art of God, below there boiled a thick and tarry mass that covered all the banks with clamminess. Okay. Um, So, tar or pitch. The next pouch is entirely full of what looks like tar or pitch. This black, sludgy, boiling liquid, right? It's not only... um, uh, it's not only liquid, but it's but it's hot, right? Heated not by fire, but by the art of God. Um, it is boiling pitch or boiling tar. Okay. And yes, yeah, Stephen, referencing ships. Um, it's all about the ships. Now, on the one hand, this is a, um, a fairly clear kind of uh, comparison to make, right? Where would you see huge vats of tar? Uh, you know, being heated up and boiled. Well, in shipyards, they use a lot of tar uh, in shipyards, right, to uh, uh, to seal and waterproof the ships. Um, so, you know, just as I have, you know, seen in a shipyard uh, huge vats of tar, so uh, this was like a really huge vat of tar, uh, is on the one hand a, a sort of sensible comparison. And, and honestly, if anything, it's really direct, Right. Before me, I saw a vast sea of tar, which was, it was like when there's a big pot of tar boiling, <laughs> it was boiling just like that other tar boils. Right? And in one sense, it's almost too on the nose uh, or, or like suspiciously on the nose uh, for an epic simile. Um, I mean, that's not normally how his epic similes go. Um, it, it, this sounds almost more like an anecdote than a simile, exactly. He's not comparing it to tar. He's sort of saying, um, you know, uh, you know the tar that you... Have you ever been down to the dockyards, right, and seen them boiling tar because they're doing repairs on ships, especially, you know, like in the wintertime when they, you know, when they can't uh, uh, sail so much and, you know, they pull out... Anyway, it was, it was like that, right? Um, that's not, again, that's not how epic similes work. That's never how his epic similes have worked. So it's, it's a little bit odd, uh, to begin with. Um, and of course, this is not just anywhere. This is in Venice. Now, of course you would, 
see this kind of thing in Venice. Uh, Venice has the you know one of the greatest navies in the world, um, so it is a very ship-oriented place. And remember, Venice in the Middle Ages, um, Venice in the Middle Ages is uh, um, you know what the I mean it's been one of the naval powers and specifically mercantile powers of the Western world for a long time now. Um, so when we are thinking about the ships of the Venetians, we are not only just thinking about ships, we are thinking about other things like commerce, right? We are thinking about, um, uh, all of the things that the ships of the Venetians do, um, the exploration, uh, the trading, um, and the sort of vast commercial empire uh, that uh, Venice has established through their ships. Now, uh, Sarah and um, Veronica on YouTube were both wondering about tarring and feathering. I do not know the answer to that question. Um, that is, how far back and in what... I get the vague impression that tarring and feathering is a is a sort of an American thing, but I'm not sure uh, that that's true. I don't know the history of tarring and feathering as a sort of punishment or a public shaming uh, uh, ritual. Um, I will cheerfully hear any information anybody else finds on that subject because uh, I don't know. Um, but I don't recall any references to that uh, in the Middle Ages. I suspect mostly because um, I suspect mostly, I don't know, <laughs> feathers like are useful. Uh, it's a it's <laughs> tarring and feathering. For whatever else you might say about it is, is vast expenditure of feathers uh, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of limited value. Um, uh, okay. Let's see. All right. David says Wikipedia claims the first reference to it comes from Richard the first. Okay. Okay. Wait, Richard the first, David, like Shakespeare. Are we talking? Or, no, in the court of Richard the first. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Hey, t again, Tony's on YouTube as well. All right. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Didn't know that. Um, hmm. I don't remember ever encountering that in Middle English. Maybe I just haven't encountered it or have forgotten. Um, interesting. Connected to the Navy and they're landing in the Holy Land, Michael? Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Stephen is quoting it there. Um, right. It's a naval punishment. So again, tar will be handy. Uh, a naval punishment. Pitches poured on his head. And feathers are down, strawed upon the same, whereby he may be known. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. No idea. No idea. Uh, no idea if that was a relevant thing. I mean, that predated Dante, but 
Richard the First. I don't know. Uh, that is, I don't know if it's uh, something that uh, would be relevant in Dante's world there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, Tomas, you're absolutely right. Tar is extremely... Again, they, they use a lot of tar in uh, in the navies, you know, in, in ships in general, uh, so that it would be a naval punishment would not be surprising much at all. Um, okay. All right. St uh, uh, Stephen says that apparently starting in the 1600s, there are a lot more references. Um, okay. Okay. Um, sure. Right, yeah, Tony says it's more common in the 17th century among civilians. Right, okay. So, based on extensive Wikipedia research, it sounds like uh, tarring and feathering was certainly not common. Um, that is to say, I, it seems like it would not be safe uh, to think that it's what most people would think of. Um you know, that it's that Dante would be expecting an association with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, exactly. Michael says it seems unlikely to have in entered Dante's world at this kind of level. I agree. I agree. Um, okay, so. We don't yet know what sin is going on here or what sin is being punished here. What sin is this tar connected to, but we're getting a, what sounds like a big old hint, right? We're thinking Venice. We're thinking Venetian fleets. We're thinking Venetian commerce and trade. Uh, okay. Um, but those six lines, the six lines of that non simile, Instead of voyaging, some build new keels. Some tow and tar the ribs of hulls worn out by too much journeying. Some ha hammer at the prow, some at the stern, and some make oars. And some braid ropes and cords. One mends the jib, another the mainsail. So, not by fire, but by the art of God, below they're boiled. So, like, why, why do we get all of this activity? I mean, if we skipped all of that stuff... Uh, keep in mind, by the way, the parentheses are editorial. I should have mentioned this ages and ages ago. Um, but we're not, we don't do much punctuation in the Middle Ages. Um, punctuation became popular with the printing press. Punctuation is, it's not unknown. There are some scribes who use some punctuation conventions, but it's not common. And it's certainly not universal. Um, punctuation, like weird concepts like standardized spelling of words, uh, became popularized with the printing press. Um, we don't trouble ourselves with either of those things in the Middle Ages. Um, so one should always be cautious. I'm not saying like cynical, but cautious uh, when reading a, uh, uh, a medieval again, you know, a translation um, or even just an addition, uh, you know, even if you're doing something like reading Chaucer or Mallory in the original, um, very often the uh, uh, the original will not have included the punctuation. So the punctuation is editorial. 
and sometimes they're wrong. Or at least I think they're wrong sometimes. Or rather, let me say more generously, sometimes I disagree with them, and it might be me that's wrong. But um, that is to say, this is especially true of, or rather, this is especially concerning with things like quotation marks, um, because those are editorial. Very often they are, again, sometimes there might be some indication um, on a manuscript, but it is not very far from universal. Uh, And so therefore a modern editor will be guessing sometimes with, you know, substantial weight of plausibility behind it. But sometimes there are dubious cases. Like, is that a quote or not? Is this, who's saying a a particular thing, right? Um, Those are, those are sometimes doubtful questions. And moments like this, I find particularly interesting. Um, Our translator and editor here has taken upon himself to put parentheses in there. And I don't totally disagree with this. I'm not saying I disagree. Um, It sure sounds parenthetical. I mean, that whole, as I was saying, that whole six lines stands out as something almost... um, almost entirely beside the point. So I can understand why I put it in parentheses. Um, but, um, uh, but just, just keep in mind, keep in mind that punctuation is editorial. So feel free to be, um, uh, uh, skeptical about punctuation. Um, okay. Anyway, on we go. And so this is true of so many things. Uh, uh, even thing, you know, another place where it, people often forget to be skeptical about things like that is like, even with things like the Bible, right? You know, the new Testament, uh, or the old Testament for that matter, right? There's, there's, uh, but I mean, I certainly speak in the, you know, to the Greek and the new Testament, no punctuation. So, you know, you can't take this, the, the sentences, that's a modern construction. Um, anyway. Okay. So, um, As in the arsenal of the Venetians, all winter long a stew of sticky pitch boils up to patch their sick and tattering ships that cannot sail. So, not by the fire, but by the art of God, below there boiled a thick and tarry mass that covered all the banks with clamminess. Um, okay. Uh, that f- flows better, right? If we take out what, uh, uh, what uh, you know, Mandelbaum has put in uh, parentheses there. Okay. Um... But again, notice it's still a non-simile. As in the arsenal of the Venetians, so below there boiled a thick and tarry mass, right? The as makes it sound like an epic simile, but it's not a simile, in fact. As this, so that, right? Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's, uh, you know, this is just like that other thing. It's, it's an identification or, again, a, um, again, it's more of a, like an example or illustration um, rather than, uh, uh, rather than a, a simile. Exactly. But then we get all this business in the middle. Instead of voyaging, some build new keels, some tow and tar the ribs of hulls worn out by too much journeying. Why do we get all this ship maintenance? Some hammer at the prow, some at the stern, some make oars, some braid ropes and cords. One mends the jib, another the mainsail. What is this, Moby Dick? Like, why, why are we get? I mean, of course, Melville would have put in an, an entire chapter for each one of those elements, right? Uh, but still, like, why do, we, uh, why do we need all of this 
all of this stuff. Now, Sarah has a very sensible observation. She says, I do feel like the frantic activity described in those lines fits in with the later frantic activity of the demons and the tone of these cantos. That is very interesting, right? Um, uh, it is very interesting that we are going to get, you know, sort of like, well, like dock hands, right? We're, we're, we're about to interact with the dock hands of hell, right? Um, at, yeah, so I agree. There's a similarity in the kind of population, right? They are kind of clambering all over the place along, you know, the edges of the water. Uh, they're using tools, <laughs> right? But, but even beyond attempting to establish uh, really crude uh, similarities like that, Sarah, your observation is much, much better. Um, you're right, there is a similarity kind of in tone there and sort of setting the stage for this sort of, uh, you know, uh, high level of activity by large quantities of people, right, does kind of set us up in some interesting ways. Uh, for that. Um, uh, yes, an entire crew working over the entire ship. Yes, and that's, we, you know, we do see a crew of demons, right? The demons that we're going to meet are, they've got a, you know, they've got a captain, they're a, they're a, they're a, they're a squad, right? Um, sort of like that. Um, yes, yes. Um, good. Um, Yes, Jocelyn, absolutely. Jocelyn was asking when I mentioned a punctuation skepticism, are we a skeptical of periods, uh, sen sentence enders? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Um, I, uh, it's one of the places, the two places where I find myself most often uh, questioning, like actually wanting to challenge uh, an edition of a medieval text. First, as I said, is in quotation marks. Um, is that in quote? Is is that the character speaking or the narrator speaking? Um, which character is that speaking? Where does the character's quotation end and the narrator's word begin? Right. I mean, those are quite, so. That's the first overall topic. But the second most, Jocelyn, is the ending of sentences. Right. Like, does wait? Does it actually stop there, or is you know, or is it supposed to, you know, break in the middle? I mean, there's yes. Sentence enders is definitely one of the places where we can, uh, where one can be skeptical. And I think often one should be skeptical. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Bruce. Sometimes an issue with the Bible. Absolutely, sometimes an issue with the Bible. Um, yes, yes. I. Okay, no, I won't indulge. I, was, I just, like, I... Uh, verse from the Gospel of John, which I disagree with the traditional punctuation of, just popped into my head. But I'm not going to... Go there. I'm not going to get to say that's not what we're talking about here today. But yes, just suffice to say, yes, that is exactly the kind of thing uh, that um, that can happen. Um, and that does happen. Uh, it, Tomas was saying, uh, you know, a, a text without punctuation is uh, is 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 open to a lot of interpretation. No wonder in the Middle Ages they had so many debates about what the scriptures meant. Yeah. And I, it's not, of course, that people just don't still don't do that. Um, but it, that, it's it's one of the reasons I mentioned it is that, you know, people ever since, you know, Martin Luther, uh, you know, with people mostly reading um, uh, the, you know, the, the text translated into their native languages, uh, in the Bible, I mean, um, then, uh, you know, you kind of take for granted. It's, it's just one of the things that you don't usually think to question, you know, but it's a decision. It's an interpretive decision that's already been made uh, and is something often that's good to think about. Anyhow, um, I... 
<laughs> Sarah's in suspense and wants to know the verse number. Don't remember the verse. I'm thinking of John chapter 9 and the man born blind uh, and what Jesus says about um, why he was born blind. Uh, that's the passage that I'm thinking of. But again, <laughs> I don't want to go into a, a long, irrelevant exposition of, of uh, John 9. But uh, that's the passage, Sarah. I don't want to. I also don't want to just be a tease either. Um, okay. Um, all right. Um, so let's see. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So um. I think I'm good. Good in the sense that I don't think I'm going to come to an explanation of uh, why we have that long ship repair thing. Um, unless it is... Um, uh, unless it's a question of establishing... So, if we're thinking Venice and ships, again, I, I think the first thing we should probably be thinking of is, as I say, uh, commerce and not just commerce in the sense of like, you know, somebody engaging in trade with somebody else. We should be thinking about like mercantile empires. Right. Um, and what those six lines amount to essentially uh, is the tending to maintenance of the instruments of commercial empire. Right. And, Remember, all of this is in the context of, of, of what's important here is it's not the sailors or shipbuilders or repairmen. It's not the ships. It's the tar, right? All of this is in the context of telling us, helping us picture, creating some associations with the tar itself. And so, therefore, um, the tar is... Uh, used to repair the ships um, and to keep the ships floating, right? To make them watertight, waterproof. Um, so one of the takeaways that I feel like we're supposed to have here is that think of the boiling, the vast bats, vast vats of boiling tar uh, which are used in Venice to make the fleets of the great merchant princes of Venice sail. An even bigger tar pit is here in hell. And so does that mean that like it's this sin is particularly typical of the Venetians? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, I suppose. Um... Uh, I, I, it does seem he does seem to be establishing some kind of association between whatever sin is coming up uh, and Venice, right? But again, thinking about the um, thinking about the the structure, the frame uh, of this non simile, right? Um, the tar that is being used as a punishment to these sinners is just like the tar that keeps the merchant fleets afloat. That way of thinking it through seems kind of relevant. Um, okay. And while I watched below attentively, my guide called out to me, take care, take care. And then from where I stood, he drew me near. I turned around as one who is impatient to see what he should shun, but is dashed down beneath the terror he has undergone. 
who does not stop his flight and yet would look. Okay, hang on a second. Let's try to understand that. So he's looking down at the tar, right? And then Virgil calls out a verbal warning, take care, take care, and then draws him near, right? It sounds like he physically grabs him, right? And pulls him in. This is... Soon he's just carried him up, right, from the uh, pouch of the Simonists. Um, so now he's grabbing him again. And then we have, now we get an epic simile. Not of the tar, but of Dante himself. I turned around. In what way, Dante, did you turn around? Help us to understand how you turned around. I turned around as one who is impatient to see what he should shun, but is dashed down beneath the terror he has undergone. One who is impatient to see what he should shun, but is dashed down beneath the terror he has undergone. So you're told to beware of something and you look at it, right? So he's looking around with dread, with trepidation, with horror, right? Um, beneath, uh, sorry, and who does not stop his flight and yet would look. So he is like... Uh, he is like someone looking over his shoulder, like running and looking over his shoulder, right? Someone who would not stop his flight and yet would look. That's a circuitous way of saying, I looked over my shoulder and, right, which seems to be on the one hand what he's saying. So he's both in the front part of that simile. He's describing what his look was like. Right. He's describing his facial expression, um, even his own emotional experience in that moment. Impatient to see what he should shun. He was just told to take care of what? Right. Um, but then is dashed down beneath the terror he has undergone. Right. If somebody says, look out, and you're like, look out for the. Wah! Right. I mean, <laughs> he's terrified. Right. But he also tells us where it is. It's behind him. Someone who does not stop his flight and yet would look. And then in back of us, I saw a black demon as he came racing up the crags. Ah, he was surely barbarous to see, and how relentless seemed to me his acts. His wings were open, and his feet were lithe. Across his shoulder, which was sharp and high, he had flung a sinner upward from the thighs. In front, the demon gripped him by the ankles. Okay. Okay. Um... So he, it's the demon that he is warned of first. So first of all, it's interesting to note that Virgil is cautioning him about the demon, right? Take care, take care, he says. Look out, look out behind it, because they're, they're going up, they're going up the bridge, right? He's looking down to see the sinners in the vast boiling pool of tar uh, beneath him. Uh, and behind him up the wall of the uh, of the the pouch, this demon is racing, barbarous to see, relentless. He's running up. He's racing up the up the up the crag. He's racing up the the cliffside. He's got his wings open. Yeah, because it's easy for winged creatures to you know, maintain their equilibrium on cliffs. It's well known. Um, and uh, 
and he's got a sinner slung over his shoulder. Okay. Um, Arthur, I'm not positive what he was barbarous to see exactly means. Like, why barbarous? I don't know. What is particularly barbaric about him? I, 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 I don't think I get that line either. In particular, that word. However, I can't help but think that, apart from the wings, he sounds a little like a sailor, doesn't he? Um, scrambling up something fast while holding on to something, right? Um, sort of scurrying it up. Okay, David says Longfellow translates it as ferocious. Right. I'm not sure that helps me a whole lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Michael, I think his shoulder is sharp and high. I think sharp is in cut at, at a weird angle. I don't necessarily think that his shoulder is like, you know, knife edged. He's got a knife edged shoulder. It's possible he means that. But I suspect it means like sharply angled, perhaps. Pro he's got he's not proportioned. So like these dudes, right? These demons over here on the illustration behind me are basically just humans with wings. And I think horns. Yeah, I think they got horns, too. That, that guy up there at the top here, I think, definitely has a horn. Um, but I don't think that's what he's describing here. Um, I would not look at one of those guys and say, the horror. How barbarous to see. I'd be like, hey, that dude has wings. And I think horns. And maybe a tail. Um, Sayers uses grizzly. And that's really interesting. Trying to triangulate from the, those three words, barbarous, grisly, and ferocious, doesn't help me figure out what Dante said or meant exactly, right? Uh, yeah, I don't... Um, I don't know. I don't know. But what is seems clear from the context, that line, ah, he was surely barbarous to see, uh, is he is very remarkable in appearance, right? Um, uh, he's having a strong negative reaction to the sight of this guy, right? And how relentless seemed to me his acts, right? Okay. He is... Hauling in a sinner, I doubt that this sinner is a new arrival. Maybe, I guess. I mean, it's possible that, what, do the demons catch them when Minos chucks them down here and then carry them off like this? Conceivable, I suppose, since they've got wings. Um, but um, 
but of course we'll we'll see them catching and hauling sinners around in in other ways in other contexts later on um yeah arthur it does make them sound like uh you know they're playing right field or something doesn't it um yeah william says it sound like demonic hall monitors something like that something like, like that yeah making sure they're in the right bulge well it's possible william but uh, you know like uh minos seems to have pretty good aim as far as i can tell so um yeah yeah um Well, let's see what we get. Let's keep going. The sinner gets chucked in. The sinner plunged, then surfaced, black with pitch. But now the demons, from beneath the bridge, shouted, The sacred face has no place here. Here we swim differently than in the Sergio. If you don't want to feel our grappling hooks, don't try to lift yourself above that ditch. They pricked him with a hundred prongs and more, then taunted. Here one dances under cover, so try to grab your secret graft below. The demons did the same as any cook who has his urchins force the meat with hooks deep down into the pot, that it not float. Okay, so this is either uh, an onboarding thing, right? Uh, this is either uh, this is either part of the orientation process of a new sinner, which I suppose is possible, um, or it's a punitive process. Um, you are, um, if you don't want to feel our grappling hooks, don't try to lift yourself above that ditch. I think I said pitch accidentally. Above that ditch. Okay. Um, they are like meat, which is supposed to stay submerged. If it floats high up on the surface, then it won't get cooked on top. Right? So, uh, uh, you, you know, you get, uh, 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 you know, urchins, you get little kids to keep poking it, poking the meat and pushing it down under the boiling water, right? Um, okay. Um, yes. Now, Sarah Grant asks the excellent question. She says, this doesn't seem to fit in with the idea that hell is a place of torment for the demons. That is an excellent observation and indeed part Sarah, of my issues with these cantos. Uh, my, my lack of understanding, I should say. Uh, it's not like I have objections to them or, uh, you know, like I'm trying to correct Dante. I just don't get it. Um, and it's one of the things I don't get. They seem to be having far too good a time here, I think, as far as I can tell. Um, If you don't want to feel our grappling hooks, don't try to lift yourself above that ditch. Even the, um, even, even the warning, right? I mean, I mean, I guess in theory, the whipping demons of the first pouch could just as well have said, if you don't keep running, you know, if you don't want to feel our lash, then run faster. Right. Um, so I suppose that there is sort of a way to, you know, that the the torment inflicted directly by the demon isn't necessarily um, explicitly tied to, you know, like a, a, an inescapable part is what I mean of the punishment that they're experiencing. Um, it's sort of an extra thing, 
I guess. Um, yeah. But let's keep thinking about that, Sarah. Yeah. Then my good master said to me, Don't let those demons see that you are here. Take care to crouch behind the cover of a crag. No matter what offense they offer me, don't be afraid. I know how these things go. I've had to face such fracases before. When this was said, he moved beyond the bridgehead, and on the sixth embankment, he had need to show his imperturbability. With the same frenzy, with the brouhaha of dogs, when they beset a poor wretch who then stops dead in his tracks as if to beg, so from beneath the bridge the demons rushed against my guide with all their prongs, but he called out, Can't you forget your savagery? Before you try to maul me, just let one of all your troops step forward. Hear me out, and then decide if I am to be hooked. Dante confronts, or sorry, Virgil confronts the demons. We've seen this before. We saw this at the gates of Dees, right? There are all these demons at the gates, and Virgil's like, you stay here, let me take care of this. And he goes forth, and the demons ran away from him instead of towards him. They ran away, and they walked the door in his face, and there's nothing he can do, and he can't get through, as you recall. This, that was the moment of, that was Virgil's most embarrassing moment so far, right? The moment of Virgil's failure, apparently, as a guide. Or at least he was thwarted, and they both had to stand there and wait until the angelic figure came to let them through. Um, uh, here, it's parallel. There's a whole bunch of demons. Virgil steps out and says, you stay here and I'll go talk to them. Here, instead of running away from him, they all run towards him. And his words before he goes, no matter what offense they offer me, don't be afraid. Um, I know how these things go, right? Sounds a little ominous, right? And especially as they're all running towards him. And of course, notice we are not told that he, you know, acts afraid of them. But that, um, that image that we get, right? That simile that he gives us there with the same frenzy, with the brouhaha of dogs when they beset a poor wretch who then stops dead in his tracks as if to beg, right? Um, that image of somebody with a pack of dogs running towards him who just like stands there and is like, please don't hurt me, uh, right? As the dogs rush towards him. Um, that's what he's compared to. Um, but he does call out authoritatively to them enjoining them to forget their savagery. Before you try to maul me, just let one of all your troops step forward, hear me out, and then decide if I am to be hooked. He does not take an authoritative stand. Right? His words are not, you cannot stand against it. We are in, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's not flashing his badge, you know, his Beatrice badge. He's not claiming the authority of the Almighty. Delegated authority authority of the Almighty. Um, he's asking to negotiate with them. Let one of all your troops step forward, hear me out, and then decide if I am to be hooked. This is presumably what they're all thinking. There's a shade. Let's grab him with our hooks, right? With our pitchforks, and let's let's chuck him in uh, into the tar. Um... Okay, 
Hang on a second. What's the sin? What's the sin? And how does this make sense? What kind of patterns can we see? Graft. Yeah, graft. Corrupt government taking bribes. That's what's being punished here. So, by the way, one footnote there is that this certainly does seem to fit into the pattern that we have seen so far consistently. This We have now yet another example. Uh, what number patch are we on? Is this number five? Let's see, wait. We had the pimps and the, 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 pimps and the seducers. Then we had the flatterers. And then we had the simonists. And then the diviners. And now... The Berators, right? The 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 corrupt, po- the politically corrupt. Is that right? Five? Am I am I forgetting any? I think that's five. Um, okay. In all five so far, um, it's been mostly about money. If not literally about coinage, it's about exploitation, right? It's about exploiting someone else for your own good. Right. That that again. And, and, and this seems important. And just in, as I've said before, trying to understand the broader concept of fraud that Dante is describing here, um, in part in order to answer the question or to uh, sort of solve the dilemma of why, why fraud? Why is fraud at the bottom? Because fraud is the eighth, the eighth and ninth circles are both under the heading of fraud. Why is fraud worse than violence against God, for instance? Right? What is it about that? Um, and uh, and so one of the trends that we have, one of the the data points, I think, to help us answer that question, is this general trend here. Um, uh, okay. Um, so. So now let's think. Venetian merchant ships is where we started with the tar, right? Um, If the tar that is punishing those who take bribes is being compared to the tar that keeps the Venetian merchant fleet afloat, okay, I think I can see the link there, right? Um that uh, the except you'd think that the Venetian merchants who own the ships would be mostly doing the bribing rather than taking the bribing but maybe both end up here maybe maybe those who bribe and those who take bribes both end up here Um, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it is just those who take bribes. In which case, the connection to the, mer- to the merchant fleet is more indirect, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, I think, I think I agree, Bruce. Hmm. I think I agree that it's odd that public corruption would be one notch worse than corruption in the church. Well, two, technically. But 
But I wonder, do we think it is? I'm not positive. I'm not positive that... We, I'm even asking that question, but thanks for bringing it up. I definitely should. Are they getting worse? The forms of fraud. Like, are the pimps and panderers back in the first pouch? Are they the least bad of all of the of the fraudulent? And the fraud is getting worse and worse as we go through? Or are these guys kind of on a level? Um, you know, the, the, that, you know, it's like the eighth circle is the eighth circle. And, uh, you know, the different pouches just kind of differentiate the different, you know, flavors there. Um, Yeah. Yeah, David, exactly. They're further in, but they're not necessarily further down. Yeah, I know. I agree that they're on the same level, um, like geologically on the same level. Um, so, yeah, I, I yeah, Sarah's saying that she's kind of doubting uh, that uh, that they're ranked in that way. Um, I that, That's my suspicion, too. That is my suspicion, too. I think the point is that you know, pending any any kind of clearer evidence, the impression that I get is that all of these are equally guilty of fraud and that the fraud is all kind of on the same level. I mean, I don't want to over-literalize it like, you know, ge geologically going down definitely means, you know, that it's much worse. But that kind of has been the trend, actually. Um, um, so I don't want to overread the pure geography of uh, of hell there, but um, but that seems to me right that the distinction the distinction is to the kind like that is it matters how you commit fraud, but that at the at the end of the day fraud is fraud, um, and that all of these that these are not necessarily one worse than another. Um, yeah, yeah, I suspect. Um, well, we'll see, we'll see. Um, I think I agree with you, Bruce, about the ninth circle, but we'll see if we can see any indicators there. Or when we get to the ninth circle, we'll compare and contrast that. See if maybe that gives us any more evidence that we can use to draw clearer confu uh, confusions. <laughs> My confusions don't need to become clear. Uh, to draw clearer conclusions about uh, uh, the eighth circle. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Ah, Veronica points out that maybe the merchants are members of the Tariff Council. They're evading, uh, contributing financially to the city and getting out of paying taxes on their own goods. Very possible. I mean, th there could be lots of different kinds of, uh, of graft going on there and that the merchants are involved. I mean, and, um, as um, Stephen was saying earlier, both offering and taking bribes uh, are both are defrauding, you know, the laws of society. So it isn't like one is perfectly fine and the other one is is the really bad thing. Um, yeah, Tony, I think it's a really good way to say it, thinking about the different pouches, that it's a, sort of a difference in kind, not necessarily a difference in degree. So far, that's what I'm thinking. But um, uh, but again, I, I, I stand prepared to be corrected on that. Um, But now let's think more about the punishment. The tar. Not about the ships, right? Forget the ships for a second. Or rather, we've thought enough about the ships and about Venice. Uh, I don't want to overfixate on Venice and the Venetian merchant ships. 
I want to think about what the tar here is being used for. So there's this sea of boiling tar, and they not only are thrown into the boiling tar, um, but they are continuously submerged within it. Um, they're not allowed to poke their heads or anything up above. Now keep in mind, this is interesting in the context of what we saw, for instance, in the seventh circle. I can't help but think. So we've seen, this is the third time we've seen something like this, right? There were the wrathful in the swamp of sticks, some of whom were like completely submerged and some of whom were less completely submerged. Um, we saw this in the seventh circle, right? In the fiery river with the violent, uh, of the violent against others, right? Uh, that first section, that first zone uh, of, of circle number seven. And there we had some were standing in the river where it was only ankle deep and some were standing in the river where it was like, you know, um, up to their eyebrows. Um, they didn't have a choice about that. It was just how it worked, right? Just as in the sticks, I, if I'm remembering correctly, we were told that there were some who were completely submerged underneath. They couldn't rise up. There was no choice there. They weren't free operatives. These guys tend to be free operatives. They're being told the rules by the demons uh, as if they have a choice, right? Don't you try to poke your head up or something bad's going to happen to you, say the demons to them, right? Well, wait, they, they can? They can stick their heads up? I, the people in the, you know, who are eyebrows deep in the burning river of blood uh, can't choose. They can't, they're physically incapable of sticking the other parts of their body out of the river in order to try to gain some, uh, you know, release or comfort from their torments. Um, so they, these are left intriguingly free to act, right? Now, we've seen something like this before in the the uh, the rest of the although the folks in the first zone of the seventh circle didn't seem to have a choice the the ones in the burning river as I was saying um, those later on did um, that is both the blasphemous who were lying on their backs and looking up and the uh, runners right the sodomites and the usurers all of the violent against God well except for Capanius individually but he's a special case. Um, were described as putting out the flames, right? They were constantly, like, smacking the, as if their flies were biting them because the, the fires, you know, were, were, were descending and they were, like, putting out the flames. And what's more, the sodomites could run, right? And we were told, um, Latini said that if he stopped running, um, then he would... Uh, uh, then he would be forced to stand still for 100 years and it would be way, way worse, Right. Um, so they were able, in a sense, to kind of make things better for themselves. But what's the difference? Well, okay, no, I'm not talking about differences yet. There, it seemed that the very, like the rules of the circle, right? The, the sort of the, the rules of the divine justice that they're being punished by essentially had the effect of creating the punishment like the, the the running the running is part of the punishment that the divine justice has for them 
right? You know, the, the teachers and, and other folks that we saw. Um, is the same true here? Is the very freedom that they have to act the baritors here? Um, the the bribes is that part of their does it create the circumstances of their punishment as well which is that they have to choose to keep themselves down they can get up above the water but they can, is this again sort of a, a sort of a semi kind of tantalus situation um yeah um yeah. Now, Stephen, I think you're, I think that you're, uh, you're onto something. David is thinking along similar lines. Um, Stephen says it sounds like all the sinners here poke their heads up when the demons aren't nearby. So just as in life, they're trying to circumvent the rules. Um, yes. Yeah. There, it, it 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 does sound kind of like that, doesn't it? Right. Um, they are being put in a situation. Where, where they're constantly trying to get around the rules, to you know they're being punished, right? And what do they do? They're constantly, and that fits with what we've seen, right? The continuous recapitulation of the sin. Uh, I'm going to try to um, profit to bend the rules in order to profit myself, right? Now, of course, the whole circumstances have changed. Um, the circumstances have, in a sense, inverted, right? Instead of um, the situation being like, uh, I'm going to uh, do a wrong thing. I'm going to commit a crime, right, in order to enrich myself, right, in order to make myself, uh, you know, to take myself from being comfortable to being wealthy, for instance. Um, instead, now it's, they are, they have to do the same thing, even just to try to, re- to receive a slight um, reduction of the, torments that they're receiving um, and their transgressions are well, at least frequently punished by these demons who would seem to be part of the system right which again Sarah Grant comes back to your question before right how are these are, are these demons being punished are these demons in hell or are they they are they warders in the prison, right? Are they are they are, are they servants of the Almighty? Because remember, hell is not Satan's domain. Hell is God's domain. That's been made very clear. Remember, Dante was just talking about that. Remember, he was just talking about the artistry of the divine justice. And of course, we were just in case for some reason we'd forgotten that very basic fact. Um, we got it right back earlier on in this very canto. So not by fire, but by the art of God, below there boiled a thick and tarry mass, right? It's not Satan who is causing this pitch to boil for the torment of the sinners. It's God who is causing the pitch to boil, right? So are the uh, demons contractors who are working for God part of the divine punishment? That would seem weird, right? I mean, not obeying God is kind of like in the definition of demons, so that seems unlikely, um so how do we uh how do we understand that here? Um let's see. 
Let's keep going. O Malakota, do you think I've come? My master answered him. Already armed, as you can see, against your obstacles, without the will of God and helpful fate? Let us move on. It is the will of heaven for me to show this wild way to another. At this the pride of Malakota fell. His prong dropped to his feet. He told his fellows, Since that's the way things stand, let us not wound him. My guide then spoke to me. O oh, you who crouch, bent low among the bridge's splintered rocks, you can feel safe, and now return to me. At this I moved and quickly came to him. The devils had edged forward, all of them. I feared they might fail to keep their word. So we have some drama here, right? Um, we have some drama. It is... Um, Dante's fear, originally, what looked like, again, based on Dante's simile, right, his, ver his visual description, it sounded like Virgil even had a moment, right, as all the demons are rushing towards him, that he reacted like a, a, a beggar reacts who is, uh, you know, has a pack of dogs pelting towards him. Um, but then he speaks calmly and he explains, right, I'm not one of your clients, right, I'm not, uh, I'm not here to be thrown in the pitch. Uh, and now he shows his credentials. Um, do you think I've come against your obstacles without the will of God and helpful fate? Um, it is the will of heaven for me to show this wild way to another. Which means, by extension, you better not mess with this other guy either. right? And now he calls him out of hiding, and there's Dante been crouching, crouching down. You uh, know what I can't help but notice? He did it again. Dante keeps physically paralleling himself to the sinners in the pouches. Remember right before we got the twisted backwards heads of the diviners? He kept drawing attention to what he was doing with his own neck, how he was craning his own neck to look around, right? And leaning his, his, his neck and his head, and then we've got their necks craned around backwards. Oh, wait, and what did he do as soon as he gets past it? He's just past the, the pouch of the diviners, and Virgil says, take care, take care, and what does he do? Twists his head all the way around backwards, like one who's running that way, but looking back this way, just like the diviners in the previous pouch. And that's the direction he's looking back to. He's turning his head around backwards to look back at the people whose heads are twisted around backwards. Right? And now here, now Virgil says, okay, there are these demons with pitchforks. So what you need to do, keep your head down. Keep your, so crouch down and keep your head low so they don't see your head and try, to, and try to grab you by the hair with their pitchforks, which is exactly what they do to the, to the bribers, right? It's exactly what happens. All of these people, all of these people in this circle are trying to keep their heads down lest the demons snag them with their pitchforks. Now, again, I'm not saying that Dante is... You know, like it, that it's exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. I'm just saying, I keep noticing this, right? That physically, the, the physical positions, bodily positions that Dante keeps describing about himself keep being similar to the physical situation of the sinners below him. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, Stephen is wondering why Dante doesn't trust the word of demons uh, in the circle of fraud. I know, right? I mean, if you can't trust demons who are permanent residents of the circle of fraud, whom can you trust, right? Yeah, I, I hear you on that. Um, I can't help but think, as I've said before, as I was saying last time, I, I can't help but think that Dante, most of the time, in many of these cases is aware of the fact that he is not without um, guilt, right? You know, is um, is Dante kind of hinting at a let he his, who is without sin cast the first stone kind of situation, right? Um, he's not going to get all high and mighty on most of the fraudulent, there's one very notable exception, of course, that we saw last time, and that is, of course, the popes um, uh, in the uh, circle of simony. But, of course, it's fairly easy for a lay person to not be guilty of the sin of simony. I've also never committed simony, I'm proud to say, but I should probably not preen myself on that too much, as I have not really had so very many opportunities to commit the sin of simony. Um, but... Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, uh, but, but anyway, the point is he, uh, this, this now seems to me several times that he's putting himself in that very interesting, uh, in that very interesting position. But let's keep going. My body huddled closer to my guide. I did not let the demons out of sight and the looks they cast at us were less than kind. They bent their hooks and shouted to each other. And shall I give it to him on the rump? And all of them replied, Yes, let him have it! But Malakota, still in conversation with my good guide, turned quickly to his squadron and said, Be still! Scarmiglione, still! To us he said, There is no use in going much further on this ridge, because the sixth bridge, at the bottom there, is smashed to bits. Yet if you two still want to go ahead, move up and walk along this rocky edge. Nearby, another ridge will form a path. Oh, well, now he's a helpful guide, right? So you've got the other demons who are rowdy, right? Wild, wildness is one of the things that has been several times. Even that word, the barbarous word that we weren't really sure about, even that seems to point to wildness in some way. That seems to be one of the things um, that that, you know, the different things have in common there. Um, so, um, uh So, yeah, um, David says, is there any significance to the names given to the demons here? Um, no, they're pretty simple. I don't know what Scarmiglione means, but I know what Malakota means. It means like evil tail, basically. I mean, it's they're not really um, profound, the names, mostly. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, they're wild. Uh, they're rowdy. Malakota knows what's what, though, right? He's their leader, and now he's trying to keep them in line. Be still! Still! And then he starts giving them guidance. Oh, yeah, no, if you go this way, bridge ahead is smashed to bits. No good. Um... If you still want to go ahead, move up and walk along this rocky edge. Nearby, another ridge will form a path. 
Okay, yeah, no worries. So now he's all kinds of helpful, right? And as you've pointed out, Stephen, if you can't trust a demon who is permanently in residence in the circle of fraud, whom can you trust? I totally believe that this guy has the traveler's best interests at heart. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. They are just being helpful. Ah, me. What is this, master, that I see? I said. Can't we do without company? If you know how to go, I want no escort. If you are just as keen as usual, can't you see how those demons grind their teeth? Their brows are menacing. They promise trouble. And he to me. I do not want you frightened. Just let them gnash away as they may wish. They do it for the wretches boiled in pitch. That's interesting, too, right? There's like, uh, Dante, are you, uh, you're not worried that they're going to start coming after you, are you? Right? Why does, why is he so excited to poke him in the rump? Scarmiglione, that is. Scarmiglione, to poke, do the poke, be the poker, not the pokey, right? Um, uh, Virgil has this, uh, almost suggestive, like, no, no, they are only here uh, to punish people who are who are guilty of graft, Dante. Fortunately, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> okay, okay, sure, great, no problem. Um, they turned around along the left-hand bank, but first each pressed his tongue between his teeth as signal for their leader, Barbariccia, and he had made a trumpet of his ass. And we end the canto with a fart joke. Yes, a fart joke. Um, comparing <laughs> the butt of the dragon to a trumpet with which he uh, sounds a particularly noisy blast. Okay. Okay. Um What? Now, first of all, Dante doing a fart joke is kind of fun. Um, and in the end, this turns into one of the one of the two most complicated fart jokes I know of in medieval literature. Um, it's the second most complicated fart joke in medieval literature that I know of. Um, but um, but still. It's pretty. I mean, this is this this part is simple, right? If we didn't get anything other than this, it would be nothing but somewhat surprising, right? Okay, so uh, okay, great. Uh, uh, Michael is saying possibly uh, Scarmiglione uh, translates to something like troublemaker. I can believe that. Um, that sounds right to me. I mean, that is. It seems to be the right kind of register uh, here. Um, and t Tomas, you guessed it. Yes, you guessed it. The most elaborate and complicated fart joke in medieval literature that I know of comes from Chaucer. Of course it does, right? Um, I'm thinking of the... Uh, oh, Summoner's Tale. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I almost forgot. Summoner's Tale. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it involves like 12 monks and a wagon wheel. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, uh, fart jokes. We're doing fart jokes now. Um, and their, uh, their leader, who's not the leader, Malakota is their leader, right? The spokesperson who's speaking with Virgil. 
it's like the leader of the, of the gang of the demons who want to misbehave, right? Um, they like push this guy forward, um, and he farts tremendously. What in protest? I, I don't know. Anyway, and that's it. That's the last line of the canto. The canto ends with this <laughs> pronouncement, and he had made a trumpet of his ass. Okay. Using rude language again, Dante using rude language again. Um, but at least that's over, right? Okay, I mean, okay, it was unexpected, but uh, uh, all right. And then we start the next canto. Before this, I've seen horsemen start to march and open the assault and muster ranks, and seen them too at times beat their retreat. And on your land, O Eretines, I've seen rangers and raiding parties galloping, the clash of tournaments, the rush of jousts, now done with trumpets, now with bells, and now with drums, and now with signs from castle walls, with native things and with imported ware. But never yet have I seen horsemen or seen infantry or ship that sails by signal of land or star move to so strange a bugle. Not still the fart joke, actually, right? Just a 12-line elaboration on the fart joke. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, Sarah Grant says, it's hard for me to believe that Dante made any jokes at all. Uh, uh, that portrait of him has a lot to do with it, I suspect. Yes, I, I agree. But, I mean, you're not wrong, Sarah. I mean, Dante is not one of your comical medieval writers, right? I mean, like, he, he is not Chaucer. He is not Boccaccio. Uh, the, in the scale of, like, uh, in the sense of humor scale, Dante is is quite far down the list. Um, Dante takes himself and his poetry extremely seriously most of the time, almost all of the time. Um, so you're not wrong about that. Um but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer says, and now we'll, uh, analyze the, uh, the, right. The three theological levels of this fart joking. Exactly. Now, what does the fart represent on the anagogical level? Um, that's exactly the question. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but what do we see here? He is speaking of signs and communications, right? The mechanisms by which, especially military, um, right, uh, horsemen who are, you know, assaulting and mustering ranks, beating their retreat, rangers and raiding parties, uh, the clash of tournaments, the rush of jousts, um, uh, infantry or ship that sails by signal of land or star. Um, so I, all of it seems to be military, right? Um, ultimately, what he is framing within the two fart references is military communications, right? I wonder what Tolkien thought of this passage. 
don't you? Remember, Tolkien was a signaler uh, in, in his uh, in his troop uh, in World War One. That was his job. He was the signaler. Um, uh, I wonder if he often thought of Dante's fart joke uh, in his line of work. Um, but um, <laughs> yes, Sarah Grant says it's like Monty Python hijacked this section. Yes, it really is. It really, I agree. And that's, you're so exactly right there, Sarah. That's exactly, that's one of the primary reasons I don't understand this. Like, why does it suddenly feel like a Monty Python sketch has broken out in the middle of of the Divine Comedy? That is a perfect way to capture one of the, why I'm so confused by these, and I've always been confused by these two stanzas. Um, if there were any precedent uh, for Dante simply like liking to keep it light every now and again, right? You know, I mean, it's it's one thing to say, and people say this all the time, more too often for my comfort, uh, with Shakespeare, right? Like, oh, Shakespeare is just he just threw this bit in to keep the groundlings happy, right? Oh, this is just comic relief because you know he has these clowns in his you know the professional clowns in his. Um, uh, in his troop, right? And if he doesn't give them funny roles, they'll, you know, they'll prank him or whatever or undermine his uh, his productions. A lot, Lots of times people, and I don't doubt that there were in fact such factors involved, but I always find that a poor excuse for dismissing and not, for uh, a poor excuse for not thinking about a passage, right? Um, but anyway, at least you've got something like that with Shakespeare. Like, there are, there is normally physical comedy going on in Shakespeare and there are crude jokes all over the place, right? I mean, it's, it's at least a common thing in Shakespeare. This is not common. This is not a thing Dante does normally. Um, you know, so why, um, why does he, uh, why does he do it? And why does he do it here? Uh, That's, um, um, yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. So like the tone of this, I, I don't know. I don't get it. These demons, they just seem weird and weird because they're kind of funny. The, I, mean, I remember my undergrad professor calling these, uh, you know, calling these demons the keystone cops of the underworld. Right. And they're kind of like that. I mean, it's it's kind of like Money Python. It's kind of like the Three Stooges. Right. It's it's odd. But let me go back to the military signaling thing. Um, uh, yeah, OK. It's I can't help but see this as a kind of mockery. Right. Um, At the very least, the resounding flatulence of this one demon is a travesty of military signaling. Right. Um, Man, this sounds exactly. Sarah. Grant, it's funny, now that you mentioned Monty Python, I just realized that I always, in the back of my mind, had the visual image of that Terry Gilliam picture. Terry Gilliam picture of uh, 
you know, the the angel literally putting a trumpet uh, 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 in his rectum in order to blow it in that it was, you know, that uh, animated scene in uh, the Holy Grail. Um, always, always had that picture in my head and never even really scrutinized the connection there. Uh, yes, yes. Um, but anyway, like I said, it's at very, it's, it's very least a, um, um, a travesty, right? A mockery of this kind of signaling, right? Of, of, uh, of, of, of bugles and bugle calls and bugling. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get the tone, but let's keep going. Let's, let's, let's get more data here. But I was all intent upon the pitch to seek out every feature of the pouch and of the people who were burning in it, just as the dolphins do when the arched back, they sig when with arched back, they signal to the seamen to prepare for tempest that their vessel may be spared. So here from time to time to ease his torment, some sinner showed his back above the surface, then hid more quickly than a lightning flash. And just as on the margin of a ditch frogs crouch, their snouts alone above the water, so as to hide their feet and their plump flesh, so here on every side these sinners crouched, but faster than a flash, when Barbariccia drew, drew near, they plunged beneath the boiling pitch. Okay, two similes to describe the sinners, those who have been guilty of graft in one direction or the other. Um, okay. What are they compared to? Dolphins and frogs. Two animal similes. That's interesting. They're like beasts in these two ways. They're very different similes. The second simile, the frogs are hiding themselves. It's much more directly parallel, right? Why are the frogs lurking below the surface of the water with only their snouts above, uh, uh, with their snouts alone above the water? So that they can't be seen, right? They're hiding their feet in their plump flesh because they don't want anybody to come along and catch them and eat their plump flesh, right? So they're hiding themselves from predators. And of course, so are the sinners here, hiding themselves from the demons who are going to snatch them if they stick too far above the surface and if they don't immediately plunge beneath the boiling pitch. So this also characterizes the sinking of their heads immediately below the pitch again as soon as... Dante, Virgil, and their demonic escort come traipsing along uh, alongside the coast, right? Alongside the shore. Okay, but what about the dolphins? On the one hand, it's a purely visual similarity, right? Occasionally, you'll you'll see they're they're porpoising, right? They're porpoising in the in the uh, along the surface of the water. Um, you will occasionally see one of their backs flash briefly and then submerge itself again. Okay. Um, sure. But, uh, um, but 
But how are they compared to? It's not just a physical comparison to the to the dolphins. Just as the dolphins do, when with arched back, they signal to the seamen to prepare for tempest, that their vessel may be spared. They are a sign, we're told, that a storm is coming. Right? So the appearance of the backs of dolphins in the water is an indication that a storm is coming, and so it enables the seamen to prepare for tempest that their vessel may be spared. They're a sign. They're a sign. A sign that can be interpreted of the thing to come. And it's... It's a sign of a thing to come. And it's a sign by which other people take warning of evil to come. Right? You might avoid disaster. You can avoid shipwreck by preparing your vessel for the day of tempest, right? And seeing the backs of the dolphins flashing in the water will do that, right? I think I'm, I think I'm seeing it now. I think I'm finally seeing it now. And the thing is, I don't think the dolphins mean to do it. There's nothing here that suggests that the dolphins are themselves, you know, um, that they're agents of the Almighty, right? You know, that they're ministering angels sent, you know, with the intention to warn people, right? Or that the dolphins themselves are showing mercy. It's just a thing that happens, right? They signal to the seamen to prepare for... The point is that the, the seamen know how to read the signals, Right? They understand what this is a sign of. And so, therefore, they take warning of it. And they prepare for tempest. Maybe we're supposed to do the same thing. Maybe Dante is doing the same thing. Seeing the backs of these sinners porpoising in the water, right? And taking warning that a tempest is near. And that maybe you should prepare your vessel for the tempest if you're interested in your vessel being spared, right? Um, uh, take heed, lest you end up like the dolphins. And yes, David, we've returned to maritime imagery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. So maybe that's so. Maybe that works. Remember all of the animal stuff that we had back at the beginning of the seventh circle. Though there we were having part animals, right? We had the minotaur, we had the centaurs. Um, we were getting all of these things which were not fully human, right? Part human, part beast. And we were talking about how uh, this seemed to suggest how violence was kind of taking folks down, you know, below, um, below human level. Um, here we just just beasts, not humans at all. Oh, you who read, hear now of this new sport. Um, it, okay, so hang on a second. Set up, because I've skipped a little bit. One of the dudes who is like frogs, right, is too slow. And he gets speared, 
and brought up to this and they flop him onto the bank, right? And they're grabbing him and they're tormenting him and 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 they're that Virgil and Dante are trying to interview the guy while demons are literally ripping off chunks of his flesh, right? Even though they're telling him to knock it off and let him talk. Um, but anyway, uh, he's and he's he's from Navarre, right? This guy, a dude from Navarre who took bribes. And uh, and he's trying to get away, and they're like, "Don't let him get away! Don't let him get away!" Oh, you who read, hear now of this new sport. Each turned his eyes upon the other shore. The demons all look the other way. They all look on the other shore. He first, who'd been most hesitant before. The Navarrees, in nick of time, had planted his feet upon the ground. Then, in an instant, he jumped and freed himself from their commander. At this, each demon felt the prick of guilt, and most he who had led his band to blunder. So he took off and shouted, You are caught! But this could not help, but this could help him little. Wings were not more fast than fear. The sinner plunged right under. The other, flying up, lifted his chest. Not otherwise, the wild duck, when it plunges, precipitously, when the falcon nears, and then, exhausted, thwarted, flies back up. Okay, so this dude gets away from the demon and dives back into the boiling pitch. And the demon takes off on his wings, right, and dives down. So he's like the falcon, and the sinner is like a duck. And But the duck dives underwater, and the falcon has to pull up because he doesn't want to get in the water, right? So he pulls up uh, from the water, and then exhausted, thwarted, flies back up. Okay. Um... Hooray, we're cheering for the sinners now. He got away, got away to his fiery punishment. So I, I guess that's good. Um, okay, let's keep going. But Calcabrina, raging at the trick, flew after Alakino. Alakino? Alakino? Alakino, I think, right? Alakino. Uh, he was keen to see the sinner free and have a brawl. And once the Navarrese had disappeared, he turned his talons on his fellow demon and tangled with him just above the ditch. But Alakino clawed him well. He was indeed a full-grown kestrel. And both fell into the middle of the boiling pond. The heat was quick to disentangle them, but still there was no way they could get out. Their wings were stuck, enmeshed in glue, like pitch. And Barbariccia, Grieving with the rest, sent four to fly out toward the other shore with all their forks, and speedily enough on this side and on that they took their posts, and toward those two, stuck fast, already cooked beneath that crust, they stretched their grappling hooks. We left them, st we left them still contending with that mess. Arthur, I like to think that it's a coincidence how closely that demon's name rhymes with Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like to think that. Um, right, now Stephen says, now we know how the demons of this circle are punished. I think? I think we do? I mean, yeah. I, yes. Um, presumably this is not a unique circumstance, right? But here's the other thing. Here's my other theory about the demons and how the demons are punished. 
I'm torn between two things when I consider the, this group of demons. On the one hand, these demons seem to mostly enjoy themselves. Kind of. I mean, they seem to be having fun. Maybe that's wrong. Perhaps it's a false impression. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be I don't know, a lot of um, frustration, too. Unlike the demons with the whips, back with the pimps and seducers, these guys don't get, I mean, they threaten a lot, but they don't get to do much. Um, and yes, David, you're right. We get more animal imagery, but now it's referring to the demons, right? Um, first, they were like dolphins, the sinners. Then they were like frogs, and then they were like a they were like a duck, right? Um, and now the demons are also like animals. They are like a falcon, like a kestrel, right? Um, okay. And David, I agree that the the use of the animal imagery, um, and, and notice he returns to, to the same image, right? First, he compares him to a falcon chasing a duck. And then he was indeed a full-grown kestrel, right? We get the, the return of the same animal image, right? The bird of prey image about him. Um, there seems to be a, a, an indictment, right, that... In some way, the sin of the sinners here is similar to the sin of these demons. That, of course, would be what we similar to what we've seen elsewhere, right? Um, the we saw this with uh, the gluttonous Cerberus, right? Who was both punishing the gluttonous and also guilty of gluttony himself. Um, you could even make the argument with the whipping demons back in the first pouch um, that they were dehumanizing people um, by, you know, whipping them along like beasts. And but of course, they they are humans, right? They are uh, also themselves recapitulating the same sin uh, of those whom they are whipping. Right. Um, so. A link between the sin of the demons and the 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 you know pouch or circle in which they're located is something that we've seen before. Um, but I don't think I I can't think that it is merely the fact that the sinners go into the pitch and apparently these demons to themselves also go into the pitch sometimes. Um, that may, that like defines their punishment, their lives, because even if this happens relatively regularly, um, it doesn't happen constantly, right? They're not that, that it's, it's not their default state. Um, 
Cerberus, for instance, is enduring, apart from his own claws, um, you know, from the raking of his own claws, he's enduring the same punishment that the gluttonous are. He, too, is sitting there in the horrible, reeking muck and rain, right? Um, uh, the demons, their normal state is not in the pitch. Their normal state is prowling around with their pitchforks, um, looking for... Uh, uh, looking for sinners uh, to stab. And you're right, Tony, they do seem very keen to do their job. Um, they have, but yeah, but again, it seems to be, oh, by the way, I skipped some of the other an animal imagery. When the one sinner gets hooked and flopped up on the, he's, it, 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 Dante thinks he's an otter. Right. Um, there are several other animal imagery moments. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Stephen, exactly. That's more along the lines that I'm thinking. They're the ones trying to enforce the rules that the sinners are trying to circumvent. Um, and in that way, seem to me more a part of the kind of loop of graft, essentially. Right. Um, they... They're trying to enforce the rules that the sinners are trying to circumvent, and thus the sinners recapitulate their sin um, or are, like, put into a situation where they almost have no choice but to try to, you know, continue, you know, cheating the rules and trying to get away with it. Um, the demons have to try to punish them for it, but they often fail, and sometimes, as we see here, spectacularly fail, um, even completely fail and end up punishing themselves instead, end up being tormented themselves. Um, so yeah, Carrie, exactly. I do think that it would be, um, you know, is what is being highlighted here, the ver and maybe this has to do with the tone of the passage as well, with the whole sort of slapstick element of this, right? That like we're, we are getting a glimpse of well, sort of the spirit of these demons, right? Um, they make faces and they, uh, you know, say rude things uh, and they, you know, fart enormously uh, and they, they, you know, they're breaking the rules too. Remember how they keep breaking the rules. They're breaking the rules because they are told that they can't hinder Virgil and so what do they do? They try to hinder him more indirectly, Right. Um, by telling him that the bridge ahead is out. Um, and then Malakota does that, but then the others who are told to behave don't behave, right? And they're constantly mocking and jeering and trying to get in uh, on them. And then when they've got the the uh, sinner out of the tar and Virgil and Dante are trying to interview him, uh, they're like, they keep like sneaking around and darting in and ripping off flesh when they're not supposed to. They're breaking the rules too, right? They are equally un... Um, uh, ill-behaved uh, as well. They're, they're not, they do not listen to authority and they try to circumvent authority however they can. Is their role, I mean their role in the poem, is their role in the poem to illustrate this is the spirit of bribery? You know, those who feel like they can break the rules, those who feel like they can rewrite the rules, this is sort of what they're really like. Um, 
even with the fart joke comparison to, um, you know, military signaling and stuff like that to, you know, to military bugles, um, is even that a sort of an indication of the kind of travesty of this, right? To take something, well, potentially grand and noble, if not at the very least kind of spectacular, spectacular in the sense that it's making a spectacle, right? Um, and, uh, uh, but anyhow, so it's, uh, uh, but also, you know, complicated and ornate and um, involving a lot of uh, a lot of discipline and coordination and practice and and all that kind of thing. And uh, and instead they just like, you know, are farting. Right. It's just the, the, you know, the, the kind of debasing of all of that thing. Is there is there is there a similar a parallel kind of debasement? You know, is this. Uh, is this an attempt at some kind of like expose? Like this is, you know, those of you who, um, you know, try to, you know, job the system and try to, you know, believe that you can enrich yourself at, um, you know, the expense of the suckers who are obeying the rules. Um, yeah, exactly, Stephen. Bribery makes a mockery of the actual legal system, just as the fart joke mocks the military signaling. Yeah, ex that's exactly the kind of thing uh, that I'm that I'm thinking um, uh, that I'm thinking of. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's my best theory. That's my best theory, not only about why these demons are here, and but. I get why these demons are here in the circle, but why these demons are here in the poem at all. Why we get these weird two cantos um, that feature uh, these slapstick demons, um, these ill-behaved slapstick farting demons. Um, and um, I don't know if that's enough of an answer, but it's the best one I got. Anyway, I'm going to end class on time today, and we've come to the end of 22. So we did two whole cantos today so how about that um more next time we'll come back to canto 23 next time um so thanks everybody for joining me and i will yeah i'll be here next week so i'll see you guys next week bye now <laughs>